for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. And for our first episode, it was really a no-brainer who to have as a guest. Throughout our podcast series, you're going to hear folks refer to the family of WJPZ. Well, the unofficial father of the family would be our guest today who helped put the station on the air 50 years ago. Welcome, Dr. Rick Wright, to the podcast. Well, what a fantastic treat this is for the whole professor. Wow. I was checking my email the other day, and there was J.G. John Gay saying, Hey, Rick, I'm putting together a 50th anniversary a show, and I'm going to do all these interviews and all these incredible WJPC major market types all over the world now. And I said, John, why me? I, you know, so, John, I'm not just a father. I'm getting old. I'm the grandfather <laughs> of WJPC radio as we broadcast live from Syracuse, New York, from the top, 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 top of Mount Olympus. The top of Mount Olympus for the station and your new digs on top of Bird Library. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm up in the uh, faculty commons uh, for all the great WJPZ family as a professor emeritus of the famous SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. Got access to a lot of nights. It's beautiful setup up here on the fifth floor and everything I really need to get this book. By the way, I'm working on a book. I turned up the radio that I've been promising all of you and a lot of WJPZ's history is in the book. We are thrilled to hear that. And you've mentioned the book many times at a banquet, as many of the uh, fellow alumni have heard. I'd like to ask if you would tell somewhat briefly how the station started, Craig Fox and Bill Bliley and all those guys back in 50 years ago. Because for those who haven't heard the story, maybe some of our younger alumni or current students, how did this whole thing get started? Back here at Syracuse, August of 1975, my office was 381 in the Newhouse School, Newhouse 2 building. And John, a famous knock came at my door. Hey, hey, Professor Wright, are you in there? And I went to the door and opened up the door, and standing in my door was Craig Fox and Bill Bliley. And they said, man, we need a radio professor and you're the answer to our dreams. I said, look, we are starting, uh, we have already started a new radio station on campus, and uh, the call letters are WJPZ. And I said, hey, those call letters sound pretty nice, guys. Uh, hmm. And they said, hey, we got the call letter rhyme scheme from WABC. In New York City. So I said, okay, guys, great. They said, but sir, we got a problem. The university is trying to kick us off campus. We got all of the old WAER broadcast equipment. There, here's the story, WJPZ family. Newhouse 2 was built, creating new broadcast studio facilities for WAER which at that time was completely student-run and operated. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the early building for WAER, it was built in 1946. <laughs> Can you imagine a building where a radio station has been in since 1946 and now is 19, what, 74? Well, the building was had got to a stage of dilapidation. They didn't need all that equipment, you know, that new building's up. So the old WAER broadcast equipment before they tore the building down, what did they do with the equipment? 
They took all the equipment and threw it in a dumpster. <laughs> so Craig was there standing in the door and he said, yeah, professor, I got the old equipment. And Bill Blyley came to him and said, hey, Craig, he saw all this equipment in the dumpster. I think they left the dog maybe, you know, coming off of uh, Battle Olympus or whatever, <laughs> the phaser in Syracuse. And they saw all of this equipment in the dumpster. So Bill Blyley looks at Craig and said, Craig, Hey, man, why don't we take all this equipment out? Craig said, you're right. Let's set up another station. On University Avenue, which is pretty much right across from where the Newhouse School is there. Right. In a spot, there's a big Sheraton Hotel here mm-hmm. on the campus there. Well, in those days, it was a three-story wooden house there. I said, Craig, Bill, show me the station. So we walked into the student union building to the back, and it was in the basement. <laughs> And the uh, wonderful radio students of that era, we talked the mid-1970s, they had built a radio station. I mean, had studios, control room in the basement. And man, the place was neat. I mean, those days we're talking turntables, Mm -hmm. cart machines, records and stuff. It was just organized, just a beautiful look. And that day there had to have been at least maybe 12 students down there all sitting around in the station. And there was a disc jockey who I'll never forget. This was emotional for me. Johnny D was his name. And Johnny D was sightless. Uh, Doing this stage in the history of Syracuse University, uh, there were a number of young people who were sightless. And of course, they live in a world of audio. So radio, you know, the audio is their world. Absolutely. And there was Johnny D on the air, man. And of course, they had, you know, the charts on the wall about the format. And this is the moment that I just never forget. A brand new faculty professor here at Syracuse University. Johnny D is on the air. I mean, this kid was really sound like he was at Major Market, New York City somewhere. And he's on the air, WJPC 1200 T-Rock, you know. And I said, wow. By the way, the power output was one-tenth of a watt. Craig Fox, it was his genius engineering self. He's got an incredible way of doing an interpretation of the engineering part 73 rules, you know, the FCC Mm -hmm. with regards to, you know, radio stations. And he found that if you have a radio station that is operating with one-tenth of a watt or lower, it's legal to be on the air. And Craig built the transmitter. And of course, the transmitter was up on Mount Olympus with a wire hanging down the side of the dome, which really gave a signal of at least about three or four miles of the campus. There you go. The whole thing was covered. Yes, at 1200 on the dial. I said, Craig and Bill, what's the problem? They said, Professor, we can't get any professor or someone to help us here. Everybody's turned us down and they, you know, we keep getting these letters from the student affairs that we must cease and desist and get out of the basement. I said, hold it, guys. You guys need to be a student organization. I said, okay, let's settle this right there. So Bill Bliley and Craig Fox and yours truly, Professor Rick Wright, we go over to Student Affairs. And I walk in, introduce myself. I'm the new advisor for the WJPZ organization. And uh, please give me all the paperwork that is needed to basically make a student organization legal on campus. Mm-hmm. And they handed me all the documents and everything. And I never forget the day I'm sitting there, start filling out the paperwork. As let's name it WJPZ Radio. And I say, eventually one day we'll get incorporated, but WJPZ Radio. And then, of course, you know, you fill it out, you know, and then I say, hey, guys, give me some names. Bill Blowley, I wrote him down as a general manager, Craig Fox, program director, chief engineer, and everything else. And then, of course, they give me some of the names of some of the other students. So, you know, name out people who would be the, you know, 
operations manager, you know, these are the announcers, uh, the handsome, somebody Alex sales. Also, another thing that with that station on the air, the students already were going out to like fast break deli, some of the George, you know, selling pizzas and mm-hmm. reaching out, you know, to the student population here in Syracuse. They were selling, you know, on the air. So that is 47 years ago, as you record this here in October of 2022, you've had a front row seat for everything. You are the one constant in the station's history, Dr. Wright. As you think back over almost half a century, what are some of the significant moments in the station's history that stick out to you? Oh, wow. I know there's a lot, but if you had to pick a few. Uh, Todd Parker. Todd Parker. God bless his soul. Todd I had I lost contact with hope he's still alive in his life. Well, anyhow, one day Todd Parker came over to my office and he came in and kind of sat there. Todd was on there and said, Professor, I don't think anybody's listening to WJPZ radio. I said, Todd, look, whenever you're on the air behind a microphone, you never know who's listening. Mm-hmm. A couple of days later, Todd came back to my office. I guess what Todd told me. He said, Professor Wright, you were right. That's what you mean, Todd. He said, I just got a call from Bob Carolyn. Bob Carolyn was the program director of WHEN here in Syracuse. Mm-hmm. But WHEN at that time had uh, reshuffled the deck and became really like the number one radio station in Syracuse. And Bob Carolyn called Todd and said, hey, Todd, I've been listening to your show. I said, where? Over WJPZ Radio. So Bob Carolyn, who was the program director, was there listening to JPZ Radio trying to find part-time announcers to work at 620 WHEN here in Syracuse. And that was an incredible moment. I said, okay, this is what I'm talking about. Then, of course, um, what I did also, I taught a course in radio, television, announcing, and performance. Which I took in 2001. Oh, yes. And then the key thing about it, anybody who was working at the station you know, you're on air. That was a part of the class. I said, you know, some of the lectures and stuff that we'll be doing, if you're working at the station, bring your tapes by. Let's play them to the class. And In fact, I want to say, if memory serves, I think I was VP of Ops at the station when I took your class, and you still gave me a B, not an A. Oh, my God. I got to change that. Oh, maybe I can. Uh, we'll have to go back into the record. Let's go back into the record. Okay, Jeho. Oh, God. Everybody in the world is listening to this, huh? Well, I'm a professor emeritus there, but as far as I can tell, you got an A plus, A plus, A plus, A plus, John, <laughs> A plus, A plus again. For the record, John, JG got an, an A plus. Whatever I gave him back in those days, it's A plus. He's become major market material, but also I think the rigor too. Maybe I kind of give those grades, make sure you all are get with the program. Keeping us honest. I got you. Keep you honest. You know what I mean? But of course, I knew all of you would be great, successful people in the business. And I also haven't been in the industry, knowing what you would be up against, you know, in this industry. And of course, we got some challenges there. I want to come back to that later on, where we are now in the industry, for sure. And we'll, we'll get to that, too. But somebody call the FCC up. Let's just get down with the program. Hey, what about this new radio station that's on the air, 1200 in Syracuse? And the FCC came out and said, what new radio station at 1,200 on the <laughs> dial? There was no, uh, you know, we were working with the one-tenth of a watt. But Craig's genius with uh, audio modulation and amplitude modulation radio. So really what happened, the FCC showed up looking for this new radio station. And, of course, they looked all over the place, couldn't find it. They ended up going up and, and absolutely that day did a engineering inspection of WAER radio. Right. In the top of Mount Olympus. So they went to see the transmitter, and that's where WJPZ's transmitter was. 
And they said, oh, my God, here's a transmitter. Oops. And it was like in a little cage, you know, off to the side. And, of course, the antenna was actually a wire yep. which dropped from the top right down the side of the building. We're talking the 1970s there, guys. Uh, we got kind of a cease and stop operating at the station. And everybody came to me, and they really kind of put a lock on the station, said, you know, hey, this station not to be operated. But thank God that, in my case, I was a broadcast engineer myself, first phone broadcast engineer. And uh, the engineering officer who was head of the FCC, you know, for this region of New York State, though, was a friend that I knew from Norfolk, Virginia. Mr. J.J. Friedman was his name. And I called Mr. Friedman. I said, J.J., I'm the faculty uh, manager and advisor for the station, for the wonderful broadcast students here in Syracuse. And he said, okay, I, we'll, we'll take care. Don't worry. It's still legal. So, yeah, Rick, no problem. I didn't realize you were there. So get stage back on there. That was a key point. It was a key point. And it's important to mention, too, to our listeners, some listeners and some guests on this podcast who have received the Rick Wright Lock Scholarship Award given out at the banquet every year. For those who don't know, this is the origin of the name of that award from the lock <laughs> that was put on the station as you've told the story over the years. Yeah, that's back in the 1970s. And uh, some people weren't around. But here is another great moment. And it's really cable, cable television. Mm -hmm. At that time, there were two cable TV systems here in upstate New York, and Syracuse did not have a cable TV franchise yet. But New Channels, uh, which was owned by the Newhouse family, had cable franchise covering all of the suburbs of Syracuse, you know, Fedville, Manlius, you know, out the high rent district. All yeah. right. <laughs> this is back in the 1980s, the early part of the 80s. And, uh, Naval officer. I was a lieutenant commander at the time, Navy, done a lot in the United States Navy. So I just got the Hancock Field. We had this Air Force paddle truck and we drive the truck and park it right at the very end of runway 28. So these four uh, young guys, they, I think they were probably maybe eight, nine years old. And this caused a field trip, you know? And the kids said, Hey, do you know anything about that radio station? I said, What radio station? WJPZ radio. Ah. I said, yeah. I'd say, my God, how do you guys, oh, we listen to it on our television set. That's interesting to me because I didn't realize, I knew that at some point the station from its AM days had gotten onto cable. I was under the impression that was on campus, but it wasn't on campus. It was in the suburbs. Oh, yes, the suburbs. So all the kids out there in the uh, high-rent district of why don't I call this the high-rent district? <laughs> well, Anybody who knows the market knows why you're calling it the high-rent district. Okay. So after we go on cable, we've now moved on the AM dial. In the mid-80s, we move over to FM, which is yes. a certain big deal in the history of the station. Well, here's a story on this. WAER Radio was completely student-run and operated, okay? Mm -hmm. And then politics surfaced on the campus. Really, it's all about money. And WAER was in the Newhouse building and completely student-run and operated. The lab fee money that uh, students were paying a part of their tuition into the uh, Newhouse school's coffers for, you know, supporting WAER radio. And then we brought another person in by the name of Dr. David Berkman, who came in from Washington, D.C., to be the head of really what they call, and those days they changed the name to telecommunications, which was really television radio cell. Yeah. Now, in the interview session with uh, Dr. Berkman, the question was on the table about WAER radio. And he said, oh, man, you guys should make it a public radio station, basically affiliated with National Public Radio and the Corporation of Public Broadcast, CPB. I was sad because I said, this is not the way to go. 
And of course, Student Government Association was also putting money into WAER radio along with the lab fee, you know, to basically support the station financially. Sure. Well, anyhow, the Student Government Association were furious. Students were up in an uproar. So WAER basically goes in that direction. There was WJPZ radio. I was teaching a class in the Newhouse School, radio management. And I came to class that day and I said, hey, you know what? With all this stuff that's going on right now, why don't we look at putting WJPZ radio on the FM dial? Let's rewrite the syllabus. And what we're going to do is put WJPZ radio on FM. And let's use this class as our laboratory to learn how to put a brand new radio station on the air from ground level up. And we went on the air and there's a fascinating photograph of Mary, Mary, Mary Mancini. Yes. In the Daily Orange, turning on the switch for WJPZ FM. I want to ask you, because we're going to kind of chronologically here, this is not something that comes up often when you've told the story of JPZ, but we've gotten to the mid 80s now. We're on FM. A few years after that, a moment that was infamous and very well remembered in JPZ history and SU history, and that's Pan Am 103. Oh, yes. What do you remember about that and the station? Boy, I tell you, that was a sad day. I was in my office. We're talking Christmas of 1988. I'm in my office at the Newhouse School checking papers. Yeah. And uh, I'm there. Christmas is coming up. The students had left the campus. I mean, everybody had gone, you know, going, leaving the campus to go home. And I was in my office that day and I had my TV on and the building was quiet. I mean, really quiet that day. Then all of a sudden, Tom Brokaw showed up on the TV screen and he said a plane crash had happened on a flight from London to New York City. And we're trying to get the details on it. I said to myself, hold it, plane from London to New York. I said, oh my God, we got a lot of students over there in the radio television film semester in London. And I said, hope nobody's known that flight. Oh, I just. You had that gut feeling. I had an eerie feeling, John, and, and, and to the JPZ family, boy, I tell you, I was, and the building was quiet. I mean, yeah. there were no more, you know, the student, the semester was over and Christmas was coming up. And so I'm there, and within about another half hour, Brokaw comes on the air again. And said that a Pan Am flight out of uh, 103, one, out of uh, London, headed for New York City, had exploded and crashed over a place called Lockerbie, Scotland. And I said, oh, my God, what? And I was thinking again about the students, you know, who were coming back home. And then Dr. Joan Depper, Joan died this past year, Dr. Joan Depper, who wrote a book on this, by the way. She was in her office. And I went down and said, Joan. Just got so on TV that a Pan Am flight from London headed to New York City has crashed over in Scotland. And I think I went to Dr. Myers and he was in his office. He said, my God, that plane was kind of off course, wasn't it? I said, I don't know, but something I don't feel right about this. And sure enough, later that evening, come to find out that the students that I was thinking about were on that flight. Yeah. And one of the uh, students was a WJPZ -er. Steve Burrell. Yes, Rusty the Bailiff Burrell, his brother, Steve, was on that flight. And I tell you, I just, I, I tell you, I just broke down and cried in my office that day, Jay. Yeah. See, and it was Christmas time coming up. Then I called my father. My mother had died in 1979 in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, at Christmas time. Mm. And uh, this is about a decade later. And I 
called my dad, said, Dad, I, I'm coming home. I, was, I hadn't planned to come home for Christmas. I was going to stay in Syracuse. And then I went home and just packed up some clothes, threw them in a the car, and just jumped in my car and drove all the way down through the night back home to Elizabeth City, North Carolina. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. I just appreciate you sharing these stories with us so that we have a, a place to keep them all because those of us have heard the stories and passed the stories down, but to hear them straight from you, and we're kind of going chronologically here through the station and we're into the 90s now, I would say. These are the flamethrower days. That's when the station really hit its stride and was going toe-to-toe with 93Q. Those are some times, too. Oh, 93Q. <laughs> oh, my God. Bill McMartin, general manager of 93Q. The 100,000 water here in Syracuse. Every Monday morning when I got into my office at the Newhouse School here in Syracuse, Bill McMart, yes, the general manager and vice president of 93Q would be calling me on the telephone. And JG, John, what was he asking? What, what, what did he tell me? I'm guessing he's saying, what are these kids doing? They're taking money out of my pocket. Yes, that's exactly what he was basically saying. He was saying, hey, Rick, you got this radio station, man. These college kids, they're sounding too professional. He told me. <laughs> he said, the station sounds too good. I said, well, Bill, I mean, I'm training. This is what they're supposed to be college students, man. And he was complaining every week. I got a phone call about I got to cut back on this. WJPZ. I said, but no, it's competition. One day I said, Bill, you mean to tell me you got a 100,000 watt FMR, 93 Q. Right. You're only 200,000 watts. I said, Bill, you got an FMR with a 100,000 watt signal. And you mean to tell me that some college students at Syracuse University with a 100 watt non-commercial FM station is kicking? Oh, I didn't know I shut up. <laughs> I said, Bill, you should hire the WJPZ staff, if you're having a problem. <laughs> so that was the early 90s. And then as we get into the later 90s, uh, folks like Harry Waring, Dina Jacoby, they helped shepherd the station through some very difficult times with receivership and some really tough moments. Basically what happened there, God knows that I tried to pull everybody together. Uh, there were students who basically felt they were being shut out of WJPZ, you know, within this leadership and having an offer and a chance to learn the business. And um, I had real mixed emotions about how did I handle that situation in those days? Really? And uh, yes, I do. And I think I could have uh, stepped up, kind of avoided this, but I was trying to appease some folk. You know, it was my baby too. I didn't want to, well, anyhow, what had happened was technically um, we had some students who basically went through student affairs and all, and basically, you know, pretty much what you call would say, sue the station. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, they, uh, student organizational side of the deal, not the radio side. Station went into a receivership is what I'm getting at. But, you know, I will say this, though. Uh-huh. I got a phone call from uh, Chancellor Shaw's wife, Miss Mary Shaw, lover. She called her and said, Professor Wright, don't get too involved. You're the faculty advisor for WJPZ. But I never forget she told me something. She said, back, just back off. She said, the student, this is a learning experience going on. 
Hmm. And uh, you just stand by and uh, make the adjustments as you see. But this, everything's going to be okay. You know, I said, yes, it will be. Mrs. Shaw, the chancellor's wife, called me on the phone. And I never guess you, then I met her one day we, on Marshall Street. She said, no, the students have to work this out themselves. It's a learning experience because they got to run into the same identical kind of situation, especially the management students, once they get into the industry itself. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. So she was telling us a teaching moment. And she said, no, you know, the students will come and go here at the university. She looked at me and held my hand and said, it's a learning environment. Let me just give you from another perspective. That's what we are here as a university to teach and get our lungs out of here to be able to handle life's problems and handle those kind of challenges. So that moment, as I look at it now, as I've gotten older, it was a great teachable moment. There you go. <laughs> and a lot of the people who were involved in it, I think that particular uh, scenario that happened with the station, a lot of the people that era have ended up in some of the biggest leadership roles, you know, in the broadcast Absolutely. industry today. And if I look at it now, the big picture and how I handled that, success was on the table. <laughs> people, everybody learned, you know, about what needs to be done. A couple of years later, another learning situation near and dear to my heart. So it would have been 2000, 2001. Yes. When we, they were rebuilding the station and we were moved into a house off campus over on Ostrom. And we yes. had to jury rig that thing together. We had uh, John Farrakhani and Rob Crandall and Stephen Kurtz and so many others where you would lose the station under a bridge like AM at one point. There was a mysterious tone at the top of the hour. Yes. Uh, what do you remember about the house on Ostrom? I loved it. In fact, I got to a point because the house gave WJPZ its biggest facility ever. <laughs> we had the whole house. That's an interesting way to look at it. I tell you what, really, from the standpoint of being the advisor for the station, I got over and saw this house. I said, my God, I was thinking about the basement, the third floor, the attic, you know, the names of Mike Roberts. And then I would move over to Watson. And the reason was that Watson was being renovated into a brand new student media center. Right. And we had to move to the house. And in fact, I didn't get, it's like um, designing construction. They called me and I said, Professor, we'll give, we'll give WJPC a whole house. And we got in there and had space galore. And then all of a sudden, I got thinking, said, man, we should stay here, but, you know, get some money to really fix the house up. But, of course, the university had other plans in it. All those houses got torn down. That was, a, that was a big picture. As the VP of operations that year in the house, I'm glad to say we got out of the house and got to a new state-of-the-art oh, yes, studio. I, I, I hope I don't embarrass you here, but there oh, is a you never can embarrass Okay, me. good. Never. I, well, you never. may change your mind in a second here. No, I won't change my mind. We had uh, Peterman and Marty D on the morning show in that house, uh -huh. and they did a bit with you on a walkie-talkie, walking through the house, live on the air, describing the house over the air. And I'm pretty sure, if memory serves, live on the air, you said, oh, well, that's a used condom. Let's get away from that. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Do you remember that? I've forgotten all about that, Peter, but I loved it. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Oh, no embarrassments in radio, man. I mean, my God, for that era. Oh, okay. yes. So a few years later, if I said the phrase Rick Wright Radio Bingo, would that mean anything to you? Oh, God, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so before I hear your side of I want to give you the other side of it. It was either homecoming or fall conference in 2003. Several of us are sitting around having beers at Fagan's, and we're trying to come up with fundraising ideas for the banquet. And we think about the great story of the history of the station that you would tell every year. And there are several of us there, and we came up with the idea of a bingo game. And we put a number of 
key phrases and names and call letters that you would tell in the story on a bunch of bingo cards. Yes. And instead of B-I-N-G-O, it was R-A-D-I-O across the top. And it became this great fundraiser. It was a 50-50. And if you got not bingo, but radio, you had to jump up and yell radio in the middle of the speech and, and you got half the pot and it ended up being a great fundraiser. But I feel like after a few years of this, after trying to get one over on the old professor, that you figured it out. And yeah, at that I, point, you would just yeah. mess with us and just throw out random call letters and random stations and random things that you never even mentioned in the story before just to mess with us and have fun with the game. Tell me, it, is that accurate? Accurate. I did not know. Here, Let's get it. It took me about three years, though, before <laughs> I figured out what the hell was happening. I usually show up. About an hour or so, just see everybody. And yeah, I'm walking around. And y'all got the big table set up where you check in, get your name tags and everything. And then I'm seeing some students over there pulling out money. Y'all are buying tickets over there, whatever. So that's the first year. Y'all would bring me up on the stage. And God, I thought y'all were just tired of this old professor giving y'all this story. But of course, we got new people coming in every year. So I'm trying to, you know, keep the historical timeline. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I finally, I think about the third year of, of you all <laughs> doing Rick Wright bingo, everybody's having some nice drinks and everything, and everybody's there looking nice. So then I said, oh my God, I see what's happening here. Because what was it? You put the money in, we all got 50% of what? Yeah, it was a 50-50. So 50/50. We, every, everybody would buy tickets for, I think, 25 bucks, and yeah. then half would go to the station and the alumni association, and the other half would go to whoever got radio first. And I said, oh, wow. Then I finally got what was happening. <laughs> and then you started messing with us because yes. you would throw out stuff that wasn't on anybody's card because it was stories you'd never told before. Well, also, the next thing about it, I think what, what really helped me finally was that I came early and I saw these cards. And y'all, oh, you saw the cards. I, I said, that's what, but it, look, it happened like three years later, okay? I mean, three years have gone by and the game was getting bigger and bigger than ever. And then all of a sudden I was noticed, I got there early and you all were, you know, handing the money over to the table, you know, the, the, you know, the big table. But then I saw these cards, bingo cards. And then I realized that everybody, when I was giving the story of WJPZ and the story of Rick Wright all through the night radio, <laughs> that was what was happening. And I said, oh, my God, Rick, you got to approach this thing differently, man. Eventually, someone's going to get it, but you got to go into your bag of radio stories and pull out some stories that they don't even know about. And man, I tell you, I got a lot of radio stories. Really, I'm telling you. And I'm playing with y'all. Then I finally would say, okay, let me let somebody win this bingo game. But you just, the, the perfect choice of words, you were playing with us because we thought we'd get one over on you and we might have for a year or two, but then you had the last laugh in the end. Oh yeah. And then finally I realized what was happening. And so thank God I, I had a bunch of other radio stories. Let me be the radio professor there, the historian of radio. Let me come up with some radio stories that they do not know about, or either they might know about if they're really genius scholars like they are. But that was it. Yes, the Rick Wright bingo game. Proving once and for all that you were the professor and we were the students. Yes. A couple things I want to ask you about as we start to wrap up here, Dr. Wright. So the first is... 50 years of Z89, WJPZ, in all the different formats, and you've seen it all. What is your biggest takeaway of the radio station half a century later? I tell you what, the radio station is still kicking. I think of Cousin Danny and Larry Barron doing that morning show where they call over to the Tri-Delts sorority. (laughs) And they call over 
and act, and they said they were the management of the Sheraton Hotel on the air. You think of Howard Stern, all the prank phone calls that are done on the air. This is the one that I never will ever forget. What I'm getting at, radio's ability to localize with live local announcers in the studio is still its greatest attribute. And you know this better than anybody, Dr. Wright. The state of commercial radio, I was going to ask you about your thoughts on this. There are a lot of computers, and I think there was an article written that said that there were more commercial radio stations in Syracuse than DJs at one point. Yes. But you know what, John? The industry right now, I think they kind of overpriced radio back in the 1990s. Telecom Act of 96 and everything after that, sure. We got companies that got, I think, too big. You know, one company owning all these stations, by the way. Then an economic downturn happened. And trying to stay afloat, this once group, I won't even mention their name, they sold off a bunch of stations one day for cash flow problems. Those problems are still on the table. What's really saving them, these stations, is basically running it with no people, no payroll. Yeah. But what is sad about this moment is radio's ability to entertain, to communicate, inform, and educate audiences is incredible. When you have live people in the studio, the technology that we have there, you can do some incredible stuff. But the bottom line is we have technology leading the process, got it? Mm-hmm. And we should have people in the studios leading the technology in the creation of content. What I'm getting at, a lot of our students of this generation, they haven't heard the radio stations when you had... Uh, Seven announcers at one station, you know, working the different day parts, 24 yeah. hours a day, seven days a week. Every town had that radio star that we don't have now. Mm. One size does not fit all. I'm talking about syndication. Of course. And I'm talking about voice tracking. I mean, you got, here's a company now, got one announcer who's voice tracking in what, eight or nine markets? Basically intro on the music and they're talking about they're driving people. Go to our website. If you want to find out the latest happening in your community, well, you on the air. Why don't you tell me what's <laughs> happening on the air right there? And, you know, the sociological difference. Every city is different. Yes. And I remember as a young kid, man, in Elizabeth City, I couldn't wait for the sun to go down. Those big powerhouse AMers. Celebrity has not died, JG. I mean, our populace right now, the Democrats' people, they love celebrity. Radio was the greatest creator of celebrities. Agreed. There's one statement I think I'll lay on you. My godmother, who I love so much, Mrs. Leola Dyson, she said, God, son, what you want to do is make your format so compelling with entertainment, information, education, and reach out to the audiences that you are trying to serve that you would make your radio station become a part of the family of your listeners. Now, this is when you know you have won. Here are some robbers who have just broken into a house. And then they say, okay, I tell you what we're going to do. We'll give you a chance to make one phone call. They don't call the police. They call the disc jockey at the radio station. When people are in trouble, they call the radio station. When they call the radio station, instead of calling the police, you know you won with regards to the power you know, of your radio station in that particular community or demographic that you're serving. I like that. Last radio question for you. If smaller companies can take back over and put live local DJs that become parts of the community back in place, can that save radio at this point? Yes, it can. And that is what's going to save radio. 
Boy, I've been writing radio off ever since the 1920s. So radio had to reinvent itself. And of course, uh, what was available were live DJs and music, of course. The fire sale is coming. And that fire sale that's coming is going to allow us to get back to locally owned radio stations. I can only hope for the sake of radio, you are right. This, I'm just saying, this is going to happen. I'm telling you. I was just looking at this morning and looking at the photographs of the hurricane that just wiped out Southwest Florida. Yeah. In fact, the station that got wiped out down there, they got back on the air, is Renda, one of our WJPZ. Tony Renda. Tony. They were able to get that baby back on the air. But the point I'm getting at, when all the power is gone, disaster struck, the electricity is gone, man, the internet, all these tools we got is gone. But guess what? There's a thing called radio broadcasting. Radio stage with a generator running. Get a microphone, a board, be to plug that baby in. The old transistor radio with, you know, two AA batteries in it gives you a system of communication. Absolutely. Last question for you, Dr. Ryden. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. The WJPZ Alumni Association that you see every year, every March or February in Syracuse. Yes. What is your takeaway or your message to the Alumni Association? And we have gotten so much from you out of the last 50 years. What have you gotten out of the group as a whole of the Alumni Association? I tell you, for me, boy, as a poor guy who grew up in Northeastern North Carolina, uh, family was not wealthy, but dad was a real good provider. I never would realize that I would have ended up 40 years on a great university like Syracuse and probably the number one school in mass communications and teach. And they are in retirement, man, to be home and to listen to the radio. And I, I just, like the other day, I turned the TV on and I switched over to CBS to watch the nightly news. And up pops Scotty McFarland. Yep. And I just, tears flows when I see this. I said, my God, here's a WJPZer. And I'm bringing up Scott because y'all have changed the bingo scenario around. And now you do it differently with not just me giving the speech. You got Scotty McFarland over the last few years, who was the biggest broadcaster at CBS in the world. He's covering Congress. And of course, right now, all the political scenarios we got in Washington. Scott's getting a lot of airtime. And he is the person who was interviewing me during the banquet. I mean, there's so many different stories. And it's, it's really, I'm a really emotional guy. You know, I'd be sitting there in the room by myself, the tears are flowing of joy, man, knowing that I had an opportunity to at least be in y'all's lives to help you get there. And right now, look what is happening today. I'm on this uh, nice facility here at Bird Library, all this computer equipment and the system that we're using to broadcast this message to the, to the whole world. And John, you are the interviewer, major market, baby, major market. A plus, plus, plus again, John. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you changing the grade in hindsight. Dr. Rick Wright, always a pleasure. Can't wait to see you for the banquet celebrating our 50th anniversary. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. And to the WJPZ family, baby, Dr. Rick Wright from the top, 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 top of Mount Olympus, WJPZ Radio. Syracuse, New York, signing off. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.